I need to do three things this morning. I'm going to start a new series, and we're going to be on the King David. Uh, if you'll turn, I mean, if you have a pew Bible out, I, w- I was thinking I would read the whole story to you today. We're going to start in 1 Samuel and finish in 1 Kings 2, and we'll read all of 2 Samuel too. Is that all right? It's only 50 pages. No, you don't want me to read 50 pages this morning? Okay, I won't. Uh, but I do want to locate you in the story. This keeps finding its way back to me. King David, the David story, is located at a time in Israel's history. I'll just give you a little overview so you kind of know where you're at in the story. And then I'll read some text. Um, there was a man, Samuel, who was a, a prophet and a servant of, a, of the priestly stuff, maybe... I'm not sure whether or not there's agreement whether he was a high priest or, or not, but he was really essentially the prime minister of Israel at the time, not really the king, anything. But he had a couple of sons who were not very well charactered. And the people said, we love being led by you, but we're a little worried that your sons are going to be in charge after you're gone Give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. I don't, I don't know where this thought comes from, actually. You ever thought about this? You've got a guy, he's doing good, he's got two rotten kids, and you say, we don't want your rotten kids, give us a king so he can be like that. Well, what's going to happen with the king? Sooner or later, you're going to get rotten kids. So anyway, they get a king and they get Saul, and Saul is literally a head taller than most of the people in the town, right? He looks exactly the part. He's a big guy. He's tall. He's done all this stuff, but he's got some character faults. And we're going to read one of those texts today. And then David comes in right in that character fault spot. And so that's where we're starting. Let's turn, if you will, um, or, well, don't turn with me. I'll, I'll just read it here. This is from 1 Samuel 13. And this is, there, the, the kingdom is in a spot. Um, Saul is king, but the Philistines really are the power in the area. And it's hard to be king of a country when you're the second largest power in the country. You get that. And they had this army, about 2,000, 3,000 people. And the Philistines had 30,000 chariots. And they hadn't let the Israelites have any ironsmiths or metal workers because they were afraid they would make weapons and do that. That's what uh, powerful countries do. So anyway, they're coming out to do battle. There's 30,000 Philistines and about 3,000 Israelites. And they're all waiting on uh, Samuel to do a blessing at this place. So Saul's king, and it's not his place to do the blessing. So he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So you get this point, right? You've got a small army. It's a third of the size, or a tenth of the size of what you're facing, and you're waiting around for somebody, and panic has set in. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to, Saul went out to meet Samuel and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? 
And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that the days that you said you'd come within appointed didn't happen and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And this, this is a key phrase in the character of Saul. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. It's not my job. It's somebody else's job. I'm not actually supposed to do it, but I just forced myself. Have you ever been in a spot in your life where you know you're not supposed to do something? You think, well, I guess I have to do that. And you just sort of force yourself against your better judgment. Well, the Israelites have been in this spot a number of times. Most, most uh, definitely, Moses was up on a mountain once getting the Ten Commandments, but it took a while. And, and down in the camp below, they start partying, and they build a, a golden calf, and it comes out of the fire. Do you remember what they told Moses when he came down the mountain about the golden calf? We just put our gold in the fire, and it just came right out. I got to tell you, I have enough history in metalworking and foundry work to tell you that doesn't happen. If you've watched Forged in Fire and they make them do little lost sand castings, about two-thirds of them can't do it without practice. So when you just throw gold in the fire, it doesn't come out as a golden calf. Not that it should. Anyway, Saul, Saul said, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Now, it's not the first time Saul's been foolish. It's just one in a line of foolishnesses Saul's had. I, I relate a little bit to Saul. Sometimes I feel like I've had my whole line of foolishness too. But this is what God said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. So when you're in charge, it's a little different standard. You have to, be, you have to at least try. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the word that the Lord commanded you. Now it doesn't, doesn't say David yet. It just said God is seeking a leader for his people that is after his own heart. And later on in Acts 13, Paul will tell them that David was a man after God's own heart. That's where we're going to go into the story. So that's the first thing. Now you're located in the story, right? You know that. Okay, the second thing I need to do is I need to talk about this man after God's own heart, epitaph. Do you know what an epitaph is? It's something they write on your gravestone or, or a motto. When I was in high school, um, I, I, it was like the seventh or eighth year we'd been in high school. There wasn't a lot of traditions or anything like that, and we were just starting to form some, and sometimes you pick dumb things to do. So all the guys got together in our senior class and voted on the class motto, and we picked one and wrote it in called Three Yards in a Cloud of Dust. Well, it was not one of the ones being offered or, you know, for class models. You know, this is for the yearbook. This is for posterity. And we thought three years in a cloud of dust would be funny. And it was so funny that they voted again and didn't allow write-ins. It doesn't work. Do any of you have an epitaph or a motto that you want on your, you want to be remembered by? 
Anything? Anyone? Yes. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. That's, that's a little bit like D.D. Ramon. Now, I don't know if you know the Ramones. The Ramones were one of the early punk rock bands, and everybody that joined changed their last name to Ramon. But they were famous for this song called um, Should I Stay or Should I Go? And on his, on his tombstone, it says, okay, I got to go now. So... <laughs> So very similar to that. Any other any other thoughts of that? Yes. Return to sender. That that one I saw one in here. I looked up some ones. Here's Rodney Dangerfields. Are you ready? There goes the neighborhood. I gave you D.D. Ramones. I, I return to sender. I I had one here and I hadn't marked it, but you've just you've just done this. Here's Betty Davis's. Are you ready? She did it the hard way. That that doesn't seem right. Um, Emily Dickinson, very similar. Called back. Called back, Emily Dickinson. Um, How about this one? Are you ready for what Winston Churchill said? I'm ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. (laughs) I just had, uh, do you know what it says on Martin Luther King's? Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. There's some other ones here. I I, I don't know if you, Jack Lemon wrote in. I don't know what that means. Um, here's one for here's an epitaph for an atheist. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. <laughs> so. So I need to talk to you a little bit about this. A man or a person after God's own heart. How do you think that that happens? How, how do you, I mean, because I don't know how much you know about King David. Maybe I ought to tell you a little bit about King David. The commentaries are sort of split on him. One of them says it this way. David loved God's law and sought to follow it exactly. Wow, Exactly. As a man after God's own heart, David is a role model for us. I think that some of that, I just want to put a point, counterpoint on that. You know, the Bible isn't one of those books you can just do whatever somebody in the Bible does and say, well, I'm just doing the example of what they do because David is a different sort of guy, right? It's like Samson. Can you do everything Samson did and be right with God? Probably not. And so the, the struggle is more about that I just want to, here's, here's another commentary statement about who David was, okay? So we got this one that, that, that I would call hagiography or saint-making, right? He loved God's law and sought to follow it exactly. Hagiography or saint-making, writing perfect through this. Here's one. He was an unfortunate parent. I think that's kind. And an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. I, th- I think that's fair. There's more to the story here than that. Here's he says, but David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. 
every event in his life was a confrontation with God. Not, he spent a lot of time in really close contact with God. Now, some of that is the kind of contact that I think I've had a lot of experience with whenever I've got an area that's kind of like, like I'm saying I'm sorry a lot for it. And sometimes you do these things in your life and you say you're sorry a lot for them until you get tired of saying you're sorry and then you're disgusted with it and then you quit. That's kind of a confrontation with God where God works inside you and says, maybe it's time to stop having to say you're sorry over that. That's part of a man after God's own heart in this. So here's, um, here's something uh, as we're talking about what this means to be a person after God's own heart. So why am I studying? Why are we going to study David? When we spent a year in the book of Revelation, you realize we spent last year doing the book of Revelation with some minor spots for Easter, right? Because I don't, I don't want to think that Easter is minor, but I broke away for that in Easter. And before that, we did an, a, a gospel. And so now we need some Old Testament storyline to fill out that storyline. Um, the story of Jesus really presupposes that you know something about King David when you read it in the Bible. And so we're going to go back and do some, some David work in it. Here's what it says. There are several strands to make up that answer, but prominent among them is David's earthiness. He's so emphatically human. David is fighting, he's praying, he's loving, he's singing. David's conditioned by the morals and assumptions of a brutal Iron Age culture. Well, I hate to tell you this, but we are shaped by the cultural assumptions and morals of the culture we live in. Even though he's 3,000 years ago, give or take a century, right? Give or take a year or two. We are like that. David had eight wives. David was angry. David was devious. David was generous. And David was dancing. He kind of had that whole life. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that God can't and doesn't use to work his salvation and holiness in our lives. All those spots that he can use. If you look at the story of David, there's not one miracle in the story. It's God interacting with somebody right where he is. So so the first thing I wanted to do was tell you where Israel was. Now I'm telling you why we're going to do David because a, a person after God's own heart isn't somebody who does everything perfectly like the com- that one commentator because he clearly didn't. I mean, he had some spots in his life. Should, should we just you know, tell you the truth about Bathsheba and, and Solomon. So David was out on his, on his roof one day of the palace thinking, <laughs> I'm king of all I see. He's Yertle the turtle. <laughs> I'm king of all I survey. And I survey down there on the roof, a semi-private location, so she's taking a bath up on the roof. Now, that, that's not for all to see. That's sort of a, but he's above and he thinks, huh, that's pretty amazing. I think I want, I, need, I probably need another wife. <laughs> oh, well, she's married. 
well, you know, we got a war coming up and maybe we could just arrange for him to be on the battlefront in the toughest part and then she won't be married anymore. That's who we're dealing with. This is a man after God's own heart. Now, when he was caught and told about it, this is the part of his character that is such a big deal that is the example to us. Are you ready? He repented. When faced with who he was and what he had done, David does one thing really consistently. Saul didn't do that. Saul said, well, I forced myself to do it. It needed to be done. David, David's response would be, man, I blew it. That's what it means to be a person after God's own heart. To stick in there for the long haul. Are you ready? Be ready to sort of learn about David and maybe we can figure out how we can learn how to be the people after God's own heart. Okay, so number two, number three, this the first one was, who were the Israelites? Number two, this God's own heart thing. And number three, I want to notice, I want us to, to set our eyes and ears throughout the story about where God is at work in our lives as we watch God at work in David's life. He is an unfinished role model when he gets there. Literally, Samuel later comes to his, comes to his dad's house and says, I'm going to have dinner at Jesse's house. And Jesse's got some kids, and right, the prime minister is coming to your house. Are you inviting all your kids? Is there one that you're a little more embarrassed about? You just leave them out there in the cold? So, so Jesse's got all his boys there except for David, who's out in the field doing the work. And all of Jesse's boys kind of look like Saul, right? They look the part of king. They're all strong-jawed and all this stuff. And one after one, no, that's not the one. I'm here to meet the next king, and you didn't even invite him to the meal. His own family. And you'll see that tension as we go through the storyline with his family when he meets Goliath and that there's tension with his brothers there too. The biblical family is not quite as perfect as we would like to talk about it. Is it? When you hear about the biblical family in our culture today, it's a husband and a wife and two kids and maybe a dog or a pet of some kind. That is not the example of the biblical family throughout the Old Testament. The biblical family literally has all sorts of this sort of real nitty-gritty arguing going on, and they're broken families, and they don't work right, and there's ick everywhere, and God is there at work. And you have to take the time to attune your eyes to it. And so David, the David's story, the King David story is not so we can go look at what God did in King David. It's about us training our eyes to see how God might be working in our lives. And to that end, here's another commentary. I'm working through four commentaries as we do this thing, so I'll be bringing in copies of them a little bit. I just don't want to carry all the books. This is one of the struggles of through the Christian centuries, we've had a harder time taking seriously the human elements of the story rather than the divine. It's been easier to believe that Jesus was God 
than for us to take seriously that Jesus was a human. Jesus was a human. So why does he say that? Well, the model at this, this is Jesus revealing God to us doesn't arrive on the scene out of the blue, unprecedented like Athena. Do you know the Athena story? Athena stepped out of the head of King Zeus, fully formed in stately dignity. That is not the story of Jesus or of God revealed in our lives. God revealed in our lives was this baby born in Bethlehem, which Bethlehem is not really a Jewish community right now, is it, Roger? No, you were just there. You said it's mainly an Islamic community. And not and rougher. And rougher, you said. Yeah. God's way, this is why God does it this way, where he comes as a baby, as a human to immerse himself in human history and to invite men and women to freely participate in his ways. God doesn't stand outside the story and hurl thunderbolts into it. Humans are treated with immense respect in the story. They aren't just put, being put up with, but given dignity. And so what, what I want to talk about as we do this thing is I want us to remember that God isn't just putting up with you until the end of your days and they write something on the tomb. That is not how this life is going. I need you to hear that God isn't just putting up with you. I mean, he might just be putting up with me sometimes. But that's how I feel. That's the tape I play in my head. But that is not the tape or the MP3 that Jesus is playing in your headphones from him. The message is, is that I'm with you in this, and I understand you're going to make mistakes, and, and I will help you get on the path. The reason he does that is because this very same reason, do you realize, okay, so what's today's date? January 6th, right? Eight more days, say the studies, and all your New Year's resolutions will be over. That's how long New Year's resolutions by studies last, 14 days. Congratulations, that's what people do on their own. Now, I try to pick the things that I want to change for the year because of I'm disgusted with myself and I've done something over and over again and I need to make a change because I've said I'm sorry way too many times. But on my own, I'm really only strong enough, the study shows, and my experience agrees with that, that when I do it by myself, I'm about good for 14 days. Studies also show that if you do something for 90 days, you can create a new pathway in your brain that that becomes the new normal. Well, 90 days from 14 is a bit of a gap. And somewhere along the line, we're going to need God's assistance in there. And it's really easy in our lives to assign the work of God to happenstance and somebody else just helping me, when really what he does is he works through other people and does all sorts of little things in your lives. And so as we do this, A, we need to know the story we're, we're, we're reading, we need to find our spot in the story and sort of locate where we can be in the story. Otherwise, you'll 
quit. That's what, that's what happens when you pick up a book and you don't find yourself in the first 80 pages. What do you do with it? If, you, if you're not interested in the first 80 pages, you go, huh, well, that was 80 pages, but I'm not wasting myself for 300 pages. So I want you to find yourself in the place where we can be a people after God's own heart. And then the last piece that we would find the eyes and ears to see God at work right there with us, right there with us, that he could be that bridged gap between the 14 days of a New Year's resolution and the 90 days of a changed life. Notice the percentages are about right. 14 days of what I can do and 76 days of help. (laughs) That's about the right perspective to take this. Your life is not a self-help project. You, you, it's, it's a God relationship project. And so that's what we're going to do. This has been your introduction to the, gospel, to the, to the, the story of David, which we're going to do about 20 sermons. And most of them are going to be other people correcting David. You'll like it. That fell. Will you join me in prayer and then we'll do communion? Lord Jesus, I thank you for sort of a, a reset button on where we're, we're reading so we can be good readers. Uh, guide me as I, as I bring the story forward. Help me honor you. Help us see you. Help us long to be people after God's own heart. In your precious name, amen.